thank you, worship team, for preparing us to receive the message. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention to your word, uh, we just uh, ask you, Spirit of God, to, uh, to help us focus our attention on what we need to hear today. Lord, guide uh, what I say in my thoughts now and, and our attention now too. And so we pray this all in your name and trusting it to you. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Good morning. Before you on the screen uh, is the largest video scoreboard in all of professional sports. This is in Los Angeles, California. If you think U.S. Bank Stadium's video boards are big, this one tops all of them, at least right now for stadiums. It's, of course, going to be outdone at some point, but that's uh, 360 degrees inside and outside of 4K video board weighing over 2.2 million pounds. Now, if you're like, I don't care about that sort of thing, just hang with me for a second. Think about the size of this. It's 70,000 square feet of digital LED lighting. 70,000. I think my TV is 32 inches of LED. Or maybe it's 38. Or something like that. Now, the team, at least in the research I did, and I didn't do very much, but um, they did not divulge how much this screen cost them, but I do know it cost $5.5 billion to build a stadium. But, but just to kind of grasp how big this is and, and, and what it may have costed, we know that the Dallas Cowboys stadium video board that was the biggest before this uh, is half the size, and that cost $40 million. So you can imagine the investment this would have been for, for the team. Even maybe more interesting is that the translucent roof on the stadium is also a video board. So that planes flying overhead can see the name of the stadium and advertisement and pictures as if we weren't already inundated with enough advertisement, right? Yeah. As a display to the skies, all that you need to see from Los Angeles and SoFi Stadium. Uh, the point and why I bring this all up is that is quite a strong and significant display for all the world to see. And that's exactly what they want. They want to host the Olympics. They want to host the World Cup. They want to host Super Bowls, in which they already did. And they want the world to see the, the display that is bigger than any others course, I bring this up because I want to talk about a display for all the world to see uh, that God has intended for your life to be, and I want to do that by way of going through 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 12 and go through 17 as we continue in our sermon series, moving on to maturity. Would you go there with me? I want to read for you just these verses, 12 through 17. But as you're going there, 
I want to give you a little background to the text. So chapter 1, verses 12, starts a new thought as the Apostle Paul continues to write to encourage, challenging Timothy to stand up to those who are preaching a false gospel of legalism in the church. Just prior to this section that, we're, that I'm about to read to you, he, he's speaking about how God has entrusted him with the gospel and how important a responsibility it is to protect and uphold the gospel. He talks about this treasure that he has in the gospel and how he's been entrusted with it. He then follows that thought with this encouragement about some of his own experiences. He says this, reading in Jesus' name, I thank him, kind of timely, we're going through this, the season we're in, I thank him, I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful and he has appointed me to his service. Though, though formerly I was a blasphemer and I was a persecutor and an insolent opponent. We'll talk about what that means in a bit. He says this though, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy. There's our theme, if you haven't noticed already in our, in, in our, in our service. But I received mercy for this reason. Here's the point. That in me, as the foremost, like the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might, what does it say? Display His perfect patience, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then this, to the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Starting in verse 12, you notice the three thank yous that the apostle Paul expresses to Timothy. He, he knows that in challenging times, when you're grateful, it actually even affects your mood. Did, did you know that, that being grateful in difficult times even can affect your outlook on trauma? Many a study has been done how gratitude actually affects the mindset and the, the heart set, so to speak. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. Did you notice the three things he was thankful for? Let me take you to those things. I don't know if you did this around the Thanksgiving table. I don't know if you spent time with family or not, or were alone. But I hope you were grateful. I hope you counted your blessings, so to speak. It's one of my favorite things to do around the table, probably because I like to talk. But... <laughs> It is really one of my favorite things to do at the Thanksgiving table. Just share how the year has been, the blessings that God has given us, even in seasons when it's tough, when it's difficult. And that's what he's doing here. He's reminding Timothy that although the challenges are only beginning, that a grateful heart matters in reflection of what God has done and what He is doing and what He will continue to do as He calls us to live out His purposes. The, the first thing He says, 
Did you notice there in verse 12? He says, I thank God for giving me, what does he say? Strength. Strength. Now that might sound really general, but he is specifically speaking to a particular gratitude. More literally, the idea here is that he was, this is what the word means, he was enabled he was enabled. Another word for that is equipped, but, but let's first think about this term, enabled. And the, the reason why I want to pause here for a second is, I think for a lot of us, we struggle with this idea that God is enabling us to be something. He is enabling us to do something. He is enabling us for success, so to speak. Because it's hard for us to accept that God wants good in our lives sometimes. I think we can all admit that, that. That it actually is a struggle for us to consider that God wants good for us. Even in ministry, I think of my own life. I had the impression as a young pastor that ministry was going to be hard and that God wanted me doing difficult things because that's just what kind of God He is. And that's exactly what I got at Emmaus. <laughs> Only kidding. Only kidding. No, no, what I've come to see is that God has good things for me. He has good things. And, and I want you to see this too here. He thanks God for the strength that He has given us. And literally it just means that God has enabled Him to do what He is doing. That it's God who does the equipping. And you know why we need to hear that from time to time? It's not just some positive thinking. We need to hear that from time to time. Because we might, in our own minds, think that God is this cosmic killjoy who doesn't want success, wants only hard things for us, when really it's the opposite. He knows what's best, even better than you know what's best, and He wants you to experience His strength working in and through you. It reminds me of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through... Him who gives me strength. Doesn't mean you can fly to the moon from here without a shuttle. Doesn't mean you can jump here over the ocean. You know, if you just believe in yourself, then, then you can do anything. Well, not anything. What does it mean? It means that you will accomplish what God has willed for your life when you allow Him to equip you and use you the way He will. And that's what the Apostle Paul is being reminded of as he shares with Timothy in great challenges. This is your hope. Second thing he brings up, or thanks the Lord for, I should say, is that God has judged him faithful. That God has judged him faithful. If you were just take that literally, what he is actually saying is, God trusts you. God has entrusted me. He trusts me. He's not putting his faith in him. I don't mean that. He trusts him. Maybe you need to hear that today. I'm serious. It's actually a hard thing for me to accept that this is what he's saying. God trusts you. God trusts you. Oh, but I'll mess it up. Well, I know, but he trusts you. That's the love of God. He trusts you. In fact, he trusts you, church, to the extent that he has given you this treasure 
and he actually has an expectation that you will live that treasure out as a display for all of the world to see. He trusts you. Hear that. God trusts you. I don't know if that's an encouragement in the moment, but I think it will be this week. I really do. When you fail again and you say, I, I don't deserve this, we don't. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We don't. We don't. But he trusts us. For he has given us this treasure we call the gospel. And just as he, he allowed the apostle Paul entrusted him with this great mercy and grace, the Apostle Paul, no matter his past, to, to carry forward the gospel that we're, by the way, still speaking of today, he does that with us too. That he has judged him faithful. When you think about God being a judge, do you think of it this way? I don't all the time. When I think of God, the, the judge sitting upon the throne, I don't think of God judging us faithful. And you know why? It's because he is not judging your heart. He is judging the heart of Christ who is in you. Because what Christ has already done for each one of us is given us his righteousness. He has judged us faithful. We who are not faithful, he judges us faithful. Excuse me. Not because he is unjust. He is just. But because of what Christ has done for us. You grateful for that this morning? I know I am. Third, he says that he has appointed him to service. He's grateful that he has appointed him to service. That, that word servant there, it actually means deacon. Now that sounds maybe a little bit prestigious for some churchgoers. Um, if you are a deacon of the church, it means you serve on the council, that sort of thing. And just in case you get a big inflated head, for those who are serving on council, it just means you're a servant. <laughs> it's the staff getting free help. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. No, actually, the way the AFLC and our church is structured is that our governing board, the, the, the church council, you're the ones under the grace of God leading the church. It's actually not our staff. It's not the pastor's. Of the people, by the people, for the people, so to speak. And that's how we are governed, and I'm very grateful for that. But just remember that as deacons, leadership, you're serving Christ. That's all it means. And, and here's the caveat. We're all servants of Christ, right? You don't need to be voted unto a council to serve Christ. In fact, because we have the office of pastorate, which is a profession, and we have other professionals working as professionals, so to speak, in the church. We kind of created this culture, for what it's worth, that, that it's the pastors who do the work, and, and maybe some of the ministers, and it's full-time, and if you're only part-time, then you'd only do part-time work, and none of that matters in the kingdom of God and in His economy. For we are all called to be deacons, to be leaders, to be servants of the Most High God. And this is why the Apostle Paul is grateful that he was appointed. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. As God called the Apostle Paul in his 
particular giftings. But boy, Paul is admitting here that this is a great struggle for, for him even to understand why God would be so merciful to him. Look what he says in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointed me to his service, though, though, formally, in my past life, so to speak, back in the day, <laughs> I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. We all have a past. We all have a past. Some of that past was yesterday. <laughs> right? Some of that past was years ago. Paul is speaking of years ago here. This is not vain loathing. He's not saying, oh, pity me. I am the worst of all sinners. Like we sometimes do. It can be a huge problem in the church. Vain loathing. Oh, I'm awful. I'm a terrible person. To God be the glory. You know, that sort of thing. No, he's not doing that. He's not doing that at all. He means it when he says, I'm the worst. Why? Because he was a blasphemer. Now, as an upstanding Pharisee that he was, he's not talking about blaspheming of Yahweh God. He's talking about the blaspheming he did of Christ Jesus and how he persecuted the church, how he was their greatest opponent, how he led, and we read from the book of Acts, the, the Pharisees to persecute the church, trying to wipe out followers of Jesus after his resurrection and ascension. And that's what Paul is reminding Timothy of. I am the worst of all because I used to be the one opposing Christ to the point that I would persecute and and, and order the putting to death of believers in Christ. And now I'm a believer in Christ. And let me tell you this. I, I, I pause for a bit and I reflect on what Paul is saying for a reason. Are not the most powerful testimonies and displays of God's mercy, are not the most powerful ones those who were so far from the truth, and when they came to the truth, it just causes us to be in awe of what God has done are not the most powerful testimonies of God the ones that are, you know, someone just reaching rock bottom only to find their way to Christ? Now, that isn't to say that each of us, no matter our testimony, doesn't have an important testimony. But let me just say, oh, God can use any life to display His mercy. In fact, all that more greater how far you've fallen to be raised up in Christ and to be a picture of His forgiveness. He says in verse 14, look there, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. It the point is not him making an excuse, like, well, I was ignorant, I didn't know what I was doing. That's true, but that's not the point. The point is that he's talking about how God, God's mercy and grace was overflowed. Overflowed from him into his life is, is really what he is pointing to. Mercy. It, it's, it's not getting what we deserve. I told you I'd get back to this. We don't deserve God's grace. The difference between mercy and grace, grace is receiving what we do not deserve. 
It's what we get. It's that gift. If you want to talk about this treasure that we have, it's the grace of God that we do not deserve. All throughout the Bible, we see stories of undeserving people receiving the mercy of God. From Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the kings. Until one day, the Savior comes. And by God's mercy, offers us grace. Grace. But I received, verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the worst sinner of all, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. Do you see God as a patient God with you? The reason we receive mercy that Christ's perfect patience, that His love, forgiveness, and cleansing would be displayed for all the world to see in us. Much greater than any video board in any stadium in all of the world. Here's what we need to hear today. Just two things. Just two things. Meaning I have a ways to go, but... <laughs> I'm kidding. But just two things. Number one, our sin is not greater than God's mercy. Boy, I need to hear that today. My sin is not greater than God's mercy. Think about the story of Jonah. You know the story? Kids, what, what is the story of Jonah about? Kids, help me out. Jonah and the... Okay, the kids left. Um, parents! Um, <laughs> what's the story of Jonah about? Jonah the whale, Jonah in the belly, Jonah in the belly of a fish. You see these, these, these as kids' stories. They're really actually not very PG at all. Um, <laughs> the story of Jonah is quite a troubling story. A prophet called by God to go to this horribly sinful city called Nineveh. A city, by the way, that one of its most prominent gods was a god of the sea. A fish god. Isn't that interesting parallel in the story? Anyway, Nineveh was an oppressor of Israel. And God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repent. And if you repent, I will spare you. And Jonah has a couple of reasons for not being too happy about this idea that God is sending him. Number one, obviously going to Nineveh as an Israelite himself, as a Jewish man himself, would have been a dangerous calling. Okay? And now he has to go to the enemy, so to speak, and preach a message of repentance. Imagine walking to your greatest enemy and saying, repent or God's going to kill you. How would that go? So there's a reason why Jonah has some fear and rather than goes to Nineveh, he goes what? The other way? Boards a boat, goes out onto the sea, 
as the story goes, there is a great and horrible storm. And Jonah is convinced that the storms are raging because of his disobedience to God. And so he convinces the captain and his men to throw him overboard. He said, this is my fault, throw me overboard. Let's get done with this. I don't want my life anymore. Throw me overboard. You'll be spared. And of course, as the story goes, he is thrown overboard and he is swallowed by a gray fish. And for three days, we have parallels of the gospel in this. He sits in the belly of that whale, only to be spit up on shore, revived back to life, so to speak, and go to Nineveh and preach a gospel of repentance. And here's what happens in the story. You probably know it. The Ninevites repent. And they turn to God. And they cry out to God for mercy. And all is well. No, not really. Jonah's all bent out of shape. He's angry at God. That's where the story ends. I didn't see that version in my children's Bible. Jonah sulking underneath the plant that God provided for him to protect him from the sun, saying, why are you so merciful, God? Why would you save them? And there's a reason for that, too. It's pretty likely that Jonah's grandparents or parents were persecuted, by the Ninevites. They were the great enemy. They were hostile and violent. He had a reason not to like them. All the more for ourselves, before we get too haughty, to consider that uh, we too can have the same attitude towards others. Ever thought to yourself, you know what, I don't know if that person deserves the mercy of God or he's... He's a Christian, she's a Christian, I don't know about that. Do you know about their past? It's the same attitude, it's the same thought process that somehow someone else is less deserving than you. You know why I think the story of Jonah ends with him sulking and it just seems open-ended? Because I believe it points us to the coming Messiah. The mercy and grace of God coming in Christ Jesus that no prophet could ever fulfill what God was going to fulfill in Christ. And it leads me thinking that the point of the story is that Jonah eventually realizes that not only are the Ninevites worthy of God's mercy, he is not either. That Jesus would come and he would fulfill the law and the prophets. And he would win victory over sin and death and the enemy and the violence that comes from that. And in that victory, he would display for all of the world to see his mercy and grace. If you hear anything today, hear this. No sin is greater than the mercy of God. I don't know what you're dealing with today. I don't know what you did last week. I don't know what you did 10 years ago, but you need to receive that today if you're in Christ Jesus. Nothing you have done 
is greater than what Jesus has done. Nothing. Hear it. Nothing. Not even that thing that came to mind that you're so ashamed of you wouldn't tell a soul. Nothing is greater than the mercy of God. Do you know how we know that? Do you know where we have proof? Jesus. Psalm 51, 1 through 4, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That was found in Jesus. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. It's like constantly on my mind. Constantly on my mind. And yet His mercy endures forever. Mercy. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But I tell you what, the Lord wants to lavish it upon us. So hear this. There's a purpose for that too. God wants to display his mercy through your life. Meaning the the punishment for our error and wrong we deserve. But Christ took it upon himself. You know why he did that? So that God's forgiveness would be displayed in you. That, That when you're patient with others, they would see Christ. That when you're kind to those who offend you, they would see Jesus. That when you don't pay repay evil with evil, but evil with good, which is very hard to do, that they would see Jesus. That's what Jesus taught us. That's mercy. And it's all for him. Mercy. Like what 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, It says, we have this treasure, the grace of God, in earthen vessels so that the all-surpassing power of God may be seen in him and not in us. I love that verse. We, We have this treasure that's been entrusted to us, as the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, and we have it in this broken vessel like a jar of clay, he says. Something that can so easily be shattered, something that obviously and often walking through life is broken. Yet we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the world would see God and not us. Yeah. That is the display that God wants us to be for him. And I want to remind you of that today as we are reminded of the gratitude we have in Christ Jesus. And so would you stand with me as I close in prayer and we respond by receiving not only this this message that God has for us, but respond in a way 
that would be glorifying to him as we apply it to our lives as we go. I'm going to close in prayer and just pray that in each one of us. Heavenly Father, as you want to display your mercy and grace in our lives, Lord, we have to admit that it is far more difficult than we would like to admit. That being patient with others and kind to those who offend us and good to those who hurt us, that's hard. It's really hard. And yet, Lord Jesus, we know that the power and strength to live that doesn't come from ourselves, but from you. So whatever we face that is ahead, we go in your strength. We go in your strength. And I pray for each and every one who is here today that doesn't have that strength. They don't feel it. And it's so, so, much, more, so much more than a feeling. But as, as we are sitting here in broken vessels, aging vessels, I, I pray that we would recognize that your strength is our greatest success. It's our greatest guide. It's our only way forward so that we can display your great mercy and grace for all the world to see. For our neighbor, for our parents, for our friends, for our kids, for, for everyone to see. Lord Jesus, give us the strength now as we go from here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.